Uh, tonight I, I want to uh, preach on a single issue voter, a single issue voter. If you take your Bibles and turn to Proverbs 29, Proverbs 29, we live in the greatest nation on earth. And America has been called the land of promise. And if you, um, if you don't believe that, um, listen to some of our politicians. I promise, I promise, I promise, I promise. <laughs> there was a uh, four-year-old um, young girl. She was with her dad, and her dad had been watching political ads. How many people just love these political ads? Oh, come on. I guess I'm the only one. I'm sorry. But they were, she was watching these political ads with her, with her dad and just being really weary of it and just seeing all these endless, endless campaign ads, uh, she asked her dad, she said, Dad, will you read me a fairy tale? And um, he said, sure, honey, I'll, I'll read you a fairy tale. So he began, Once Upon a Time, and the little girl said, Daddy, are all fairy tales Once Upon a Time? He said, oh, no, no, sweetheart, most fairy tales begin with when I'm elected, Uh, um, Christopher Columbus, he was probably one of the greatest politicians ever. Um, when he left, he didn't know where he was going. When he got there, he didn't know where he was. And when he went back, he didn't know where he'd been. And he did all that with somebody else's money. <laughs> Thank you for laughing. There's a couple of people <laughs> thought that was figured that out. If you would stand just in the uh, reverence of God's word, Proverbs 29.2, Proverbs 29.2. And this is what it says. When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when the wicked beareth rule, the people mourn. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, Lord, I just um, I want to ask you tonight that... Um, you will give me um, only the words, Lord, that you would have me to say tonight. Lord, I just pray that it will be clear. Lord, I pray it will be based on your word. And Lord, I just pray that you would not have me say anything, Lord, that you would, um, I would uh, not need to say. And Lord, I just pray that you will um, move among your people tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I've been accused over the years of, of being a single-issue voter. Have y'all ever heard that? Yeah, Randy, you're just a single-issue voter. You're only, you know, on this one particular issue. You're a single-issue voter. And I would, I would say, yes, I am a single-issue voter. And that single issue is actually, it's on the, on the Word of God. That is the single issue that I'm about as a voter. Over the years, the church has become more and more and more irrelevant because Christians have learned to compartmentalize their faith. Here's an example of that. How can you come to church and sing the praises of our Savior and go out on Monday and take the very name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in vain? How can you do that? Compartmentalize. How can you live an opposite life of God's word throughout the week and be okay with that? And who do you think you're fooling? Not fooling God. See, Christianity in America has become so watered down 
and so weak that the church in America has become irrelevant. A survey has estimated that 30 to 35 percent of the population of the United States is considered evangelical. Now, whatever that means, uh, I'm not really sure, but it's considered an evangelical Christians, 30 to 35 percent of the population. That's somewhere between 90 and 100 million people in the United States of America considers themselves an evangelical Christian. That's 30 to 35 percent of the population of the United States could decide any election. Any election. You see, I don't believe God put Proverbs 29 to, I don't believe he put it um, in his word just to point out as a point of information. You see, I think God was trying to tell us something when he put Proverbs 29.2 in his word. And I would say to countries tonight, for example, North Korea, when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when the wicked beareth rule, the people mourn. I would say to Venezuela tonight, when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when the wicked beareth rule, the people mourn. See, these countries know what I'm talking about tonight. China, when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when the wicked beareth rule, the people mourn. America tonight, when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when the wicked beareth rule, the people mourn. You see, now in America, for the godly to be in authority, we have to vote for them. And you say, well, that's a kind of pretty simple concept. But elections are based, are a basic part of how our government works in the United States. In fact, government is one of the three institutions that God has established along with the family and the church. You see, Paul in Romans 13 states that the governmental authorities that exist has been established by God. Since God established the institution of government, would he not tell his people to stay out of it? Would he actually tell his people to stay out of government if, he did, if that was not one of the institutions that he has put together, that he's established? You see, God expects us to get involved, to make a positive impact and lead the way to the real lasting change, just as Christians have done since the settlement of the founding of this nation. You see, over the years, we have heard me give case after case after case that this nation was founded on biblical principles. Every time I get up and I talk about our government, our nation, I go back to our founding fathers and I say again and again and again that this nation was found on biblical principles. And because of those biblical foundations, God has abundantly, has abundantly blessed the United States of America. When our pilgrims came over in 1620, how many remember that? Pastor, put your hand down, please. <laughs> they were blown off course, and they didn't make it to Virginia, where they would have been under the governor, the governed by the king's charter. So they decided to draw up their own self-governing document, the first created in America, and it was called the Mayflower Compact. It begins like this, in the name of God, and gave this reason for their coming, for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith. 
See, we are talking about a positive influence that Christians on America culture has made in government. You may know that Connecticut is called the Constitution State, and a lot of people don't know why, but in 1639, there was a Constitution enacted called the Fundamental Orders of Connecticut. But here's the rest of the story. That Constitution was based on Pastor Thomas Hooker's sermon of Deuteronomy 1.13. That's where that Constitution was written and where it came from. The first education law that was ever passed in the United States of America was in Massachusetts, of all places, 1641, for the purpose of, quote, ensuring that children would be able to read and understand the scriptures. The first university in America was Harvard University. It was named and started after a guy by the name of Reverend John Harvard. It was found to founded to train pastors, ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ for over 150 years. And it was the purpose of it and the mission was distinctly Christian in its mission. Harvard, you come a long way, and it's the wrong way. The first hospitals in America were founded mostly by Christians. The Quakers in Pennsylvania and the Puritan ministers of, of New England and Baptist pastors led the fight against slavery in America. 93% of our founding fathers who voted for the Declaration of Independence were professing Christians. And even the little handful, that little 7% that were not Christians, who were not, did not identify as a Christian, had such respect for biblical morality and for the laws and the values of public religion that they continued to maintain and quote scripture um, again and again and again, even those that did not profess the name of Jesus Christ. You see, George Washington, he said this, that the twin pillars essential for supporting a successful society are morality and religion. And it wasn't just a religion. John Adams declared this, the general principles on which the, the fathers achieved independence were the general principles of Christianity, not just a religion. You see, this nation was founded upon the word of God. And this nation, this government, reflects biblical principles. If you go to Exodus 18.21, I've mentioned this a few years ago, but in 18, Exodus 18.21, if you go through that process, it's basically where Moses had just brought the children of Israel out of Egypt. And he sat down with millions of, 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 um, of Israelites trying to figure out how to set up a, a form of governance. And his father-in-law sat down with him, and they came up with a form of governance. And that is the same form of governance our United States developed. And it was based on Exodus 18.21. If you go on in Isaiah, and basically that form of governance, let me mention this, that our founding fathers knew that men were sinners. He knew, they understood that Romans 3.23 said, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And that is the reason that they put the things in place that they put in place from Exodus and also from Isaiah 33.22. 
And basically Isaiah 33, 22 says this, the Lord is our judge, that's our judicial branch. The Lord is our lawgiver, that's the legislative branch. And the Lord is our king, that is the executive branch. And it is he who will save us. It is a responsibility to influence our nation based on the word of God. In Matthew 5, 13 through 16, if you want to take a minute to turn there, Matthew 5, 13, 16, I'm sorry, Matthew 5, 13 through 16. This is what it says. Ye are, salt, ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost his savior, savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing, but be cast out and be trodden under foot of men. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick. And it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. We as believers need to bring our Christian faith and values to bear on our culture and our government, just as we have done from the beginning. Why would Jesus instruct us to be the, the salt of the world and be the light of the world if he did not want to influence our government? The first thing I want to uh, come up with tonight, the first thing I want to discuss tonight is this. First, Christians must vote. Again, one of the basic ways that we have an influence is to vote. Think about it. When we vote, we help determine who will lead our nation, who will make our laws, and who will protect our freedom. So voting is a simple act with a significant impact. One of our founding fathers, Samuel Adams, he said this, quote, let each citizen remember at the moment of his offering his vote that he is executing one of the most solemn trusts in human society for which he is accountable to God and his country. You see, our founding fathers considered voting as a sacred responsibility. Voting is a privilege, it's a freedom, and it's an opportunity that millions of other parts of the world would only dream of having an opportunity to do. But many Christians do not vote. If Christians voted their biblical principles, the righteous would be ruling in every sector of our society. Christians must be responsible and vote. Jesus said this in Matthew 22, 21, give unto Caesar what is Caesar's. And in order to obey the commands of Christ, Americans of faith must participate in their government. And in America, that includes a process of voting. If we retreat from the government, from the arena of government, we will allow Satan to prevail in the place where Christ commanded us to make an impact as salt and light, as we saw in Matthew 5. You see, bad politicians elected by good people, bad politicians are elected by good people who don't vote. Let me say that again. Bad politicians are elected by good people who don't vote. Christians, we need to vote. And then secondly, Christians must vote their biblical values. 
Unfortunately, many believers uh, don't even consider Christian values when they vote, um, often choosing candidates whose positions are at odds with their own beliefs, convictions, and values. Listen to this. This is a study put, by, put together by Pew Forum on religion and public life a few years ago. And this is what they said. 62% of Americans say their faith had little to do with their voting decisions. And we wonder why we are where we are today. 62% of Americans say their faith had little or nothing to do with their decisions. You see, when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when the wicked beareth rule, the people mourn. You see, Jesus expects us to influence every part of our culture and society as salt and light, including our vote. One of our founding um, chief justices, uh, John Jay, he was appointed by George Washington as the first chief justice of the United States Supreme Court. And this is what John Jay said, and I quote, It is a duty as well as a privilege and interest of our Christian nation to select and prefer Christians for their rulers. That was a quote by the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. Come a long way, haven't we? Christian rulers should have Christian values. There are a lot of folks who use the Christian lingo, but when they look at their positions and votes and their associations, it comes, becomes evident that it does not line up with their biblical values. That's why it's so important to do homework on candidates. Don't just listen to their campaign rhetoric. Don't look at, uh, but look at their records as they have in office. Look on their positions that they take. Every candidate has their own set of values and positions on important issues. And don't you think that where a candidate stands on moral issues are far more important than a party? Or where he or she belongs or to the campaign ads or the promises that they make? It's the policies. It's the policies. Founding father Benjamin, uh, one of our founding fathers, his name was Benjamin Rush. He worked for elected officials from different political parties. And he was accused of being partisan. So he worked for several different parties, um, helping, helping different candidates campaign. And he was, he, was a, he was accused of being a partisan. And this is what he said. I have been alternately called an aristocrat and a democrat. I'm neither. I'm a Christocrat. Amen. You see, our loyalty needs to be first and last and always with the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And we need to vote biblical values. So now that I've got the introduction out of the way, y'all ready? I'm actually going to give you four single, issue, single issues from the Word of God that makes me a single-issue voter. Four issues. Number one is the value of human life. The value of human life. You see, life is precious. It's miraculous. It's sacred. 
created by a loving God who makes every human being unique. If you don't believe that, look at me. You see, King, King David, he prayed this in, in Psalm 139, 15. He said this, My substance was not hid from thee. He's, he's praying this to God. When I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth, thine eyes did see my substance. Yet, being imperfect, and in thy book all my members were written, which is in continuance were fashioned. When as yet there was none of them, God is... And when yet, there is none of them. You see, God is the author and the artist of human life. Life made in the image of God is a fundamental, also a fundamental human right. According to our Declaration of Independence, all men are endowed by the Creator with certain unalienable rights. And among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You see, unfortunately, our God-given right to life in America has been undermined by a culture of death. The very first liberty that our Constitution brings out is life, because life is the first God-given right every human being has. If you don't have life, you certainly can't enjoy the liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Here in America, we have been undermined by a culture of death. Every day in America, more innocent human beings are put to death than those died in 9-11 attacks. And that's daily. That is daily. Abortion ends the lives of more than 1.3 million unborn children in America every single year. Nearly 25% of pregnancies end in an abortion. And the overwhelming majority of those innocent children are simply sacrificed on the altar of convenience. Nearly 60 million children have been killed by abortion in the United States of America. It is an American holocaust. I make no bones about it, abortion is premeditated murder. It violates the sixth commandment in Exodus, and God hates it. In Proverbs 6, 16 and 17, it says this. These six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are abomination unto him. A proud look, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. God hates the shedding of innocent blood. And his ears are filled with the cries of the unborn, being slain in this nation. And there will be a day of reckoning. There has never since the beginning of time a nation that has survived that murders innocent children. Never. Never. In God's word, it showed time and time again how God destroyed a nation over this issue. And among the, the, the world that we live in, in our history, beyond the Bible, nation has never survived. Never survived. May all God, God have mercy on you. If you're supporting and voting for a candidate that supports the murder of an innocent child. You see, 
They've gone further than now abortion. Now it's late-term abortion. And now they've gone even further with that, is if the baby was born through a botched abortion, we can go ahead and make a decision on killing that baby. We're in trouble, man. Our nation's in trouble. The second, the value of life, and then secondly, is the value of traditional family. Marriage between one man and one woman is essential. It's basic. It's necessary. The family is a basic building block of society. It's the first institution created by God. In Genesis 1.27, it says, So God created man in his own image, and in the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. You see, there's two gender, genders. That's it. Just two. And by the way, DNA proves that. Is that called scientific evidence? We'll go with that. Because now we have politicians that can't figure out what scientific evidence is anymore. There's two genders. In Genesis 2.24, it goes on, and God declares, Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. Also, both genders are needed for a healthy home. And a lot of people would say, both the Old and New Testament, one man and one woman in marriage was a covenant relationship. And it was a divine pattern that God had ordained. And when marriage follows God's design, it's good for everyone. Men, women, children, community, the country, and the world. Think about it. Every civilization in history is built upon the institution of marriage. Every single one. The welfare of the children, the propagation of the faith, the well-being of society, the orderness of civilization are all dependent upon the stability of marriage according to the divine pattern of God. When this God-given pattern is undermined, the whole superstructure of society becomes unstable. Any deviation from the divine pattern will invite disaster for a nation. In fact, if you go to Leviticus 18.22, Leviticus 20.13, it talks very specifically, very specifically about homosexuality and the abomination it is to God Almighty. Abomination is one of the strongest words in the Bible for God's hatred of sin. Abomination is. And proof of that is what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. And that was in Genesis 19, where that Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed in a hail of fire and brimstone. And a lot of you might say, well, you know, I've heard this argument. Well, that was the Old Testament, you know, and when Jesus came, you know, then, then the New Testament came along, and, and all that Old Testament stuff is gone. That's not biblical, by the way. But let's just use that argument for a minute. <clears throat> Explain to me Matthew 19, 4 through 6, where Jesus was actually quoting Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And he was reinstating marriage was between a man and a woman. And then he went on to say, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder or separate. 
So Jesus himself went on and reinstituted the traditional family and marriage. And then if you go to Romans, it talks about, again, the sin of homosexuality. So for those that, that would come up with that argument, it, it's, it's not true. It doesn't hold water. You see, Jesus said marriage is between a man and a woman. It follows logical that marriage cannot be between two men or two women. Or nowadays, it's between whatever you want to be this week and whatever you want to be next week. That's real scientific, isn't it? In affirming God's pattern for marriage, Jesus rejected the deceptive perversion of homosexuality. Today, the perversion has become a stench in the nostrils of a holy God. And again, no nation, no nation has ever survived when it has embraced any lifestyle out of the family unit and marriage between a man and woman. No nation has ever survived that. That's two things that a nation has never survived. One is taking innocent life. And number two, homosexuality. Then number three, the value of religious freedom. Freedom is inspiring. It's liberating. It's priceless. In Galatians 5.1, you can refer to that later, it talks about freedom. And freedom must be guarded, it must be protected, it must be defended. True freedom only comes at a great cost, a great price, and sacrifice. And it's not only true spiritually with the death of Jesus Christ, what Christ did on the cross for us. You see, he set us free from the slavery of sin. Amen. That is true freedom right there. Amen. But it's also true nationally. It's true for America. We are engaged in a war against socialism, against communism, against Islam. And by the way, all these factions I just mentioned are working together to destroy this great nation. There's no substitute for victory because the alternative is unthinkable. Study places like I mentioned, North Korea. Study places like Venezuela. I was there when Venezuela fell. And it's inconscionable what happened to Venezuela. And it was over a vote. It was over a vote. Somebody wasn't voting their biblical principles. And Venezuela is lost to communism today as a result of that. You see, the fight for freedom is never over. We must fight to win it, and then we must fight to keep it. That's why we should honor those brave people that have served our military, our law enforcement, and never let those lives and those sacrifices ever, ever be in vain. Right. You see, one of the most basic freedoms that has been fought for and won is found in the First Amendment. It says this, Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. You see, unfortunately, our freedom is under fire in America today. 
The United States Supreme Court has ignored the original intent of the Founding Fathers when this was put in place. And what they're trying to do with this is they've created this wall of separation, which is not true. It's absolutely 100% false. Uh, Thomas Jefferson's private letters proved what he meant by it. And they're trying to create this wall between the church and state on both sides. And it's a way for the ungodly to take advantage of our freedoms. You see, the religious influences must be removed. This is, this is what they've come up with. Religious influences must be removed. 1962, they took prayer out of schools. 1963, they took Bible reading out of schools. That same year, they replaced Jehovah God for atheism. And then in 1980, they decided they had to take down the Ten Commandments because somebody may read them in public schools. This agenda of radical secularism has not only been prosecuted by activist courts, but the extension of various public entities, school boards, educators, teachers, have gone after our freedoms, our religious freedoms. We've even had these fights in Slocala, Florida. Same fights over religious freedoms. Our liberals in Congress have passed hate crime laws that elevates the sinful sexual lifestyle of choice of a 3% of a population to a level of a civil right. A civil right. Ignoring a fact those who oppose homosexuality on biblical grounds will be eventually silenced or threatened with prosecution. A few years ago, a Methodist camp, a Methodist camp in New Jersey lost its tax-exempt status for refusing to allow two lesbians to have a same-sex ceremony on their property. That's a Methodist camp. And I know you all remember the case a few years ago in New Mexico where a Christian couple had a photography business and declined to photograph a same-sex ceremony. And it cost them over $6,000 in attorney's fees. California Supreme Court demanded that doctors with religious objections to lesbian households must nonetheless assist lesbian women in artificially conceiving a child forced by law. New York Public Schools told a kindergarten student that she could not pray over her lunch. You know, God is great, God is good, let us thank him for our food. A federal court ruled that when a, a student asked the teacher, cannot, the teacher cannot answer whose birthday is being celebrated at Christmas time. A public school teacher not long ago confiscated two middle school students' Bibles, calling them garbage, and threw them in the trash can. The Third Circuit Court ruled in New Jersey, New Jersey's got a little history going on here, of a high school coach can't kneel and bow his head because the court doesn't want his posture to be misconstrued as a prayer. 
This is in America, folks. This is in America. It goes on and on and on. This issue with, with COVID and religious persecution because of COVID is off the charts. We have, we have constitutional attorneys working around the clock, full-time loads, asking for more help on these issues. They're trying to silence the church. Our First Amendment freedom of religion is under vicious assault today. George Washington, in his farewell address, he said this, Of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. In vain would that man claim the tribute of patriotism who should labor to subvert these great pillars of human happiness, these firmest props of duties of men and citizens. George Washington was saying how critically important that religion was in a society. Nobody ought to be claimed as to be a good citizen, a patriot who takes Christianity out of a culture or God out of a government. Consequently, we need to know where candidates stand on religious freedom. And again, it's not what they say. It's what they do. I can take just about any candidate that you would want me to take, and I can get you any quote you want to hear. But what do they really do? What do they really do and what do they stand on? And then number four, the last single issue I have is the support of God's chosen people, Israel. Amen. In Genesis 12, 3, I was um, listening to our radio station and the, the preacher came on and he was preaching from Genesis 12, 3. He's like, he stole my sermon. I'm more likely stole his. It says this, I will bless him that bless thee, and curse him that curse thee. And thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. And there's a, there's a philosophy, I call it a doctrine, that's going around among churches that... <clears throat> It's called all kinds of different things, but the most, probably the most common one is replacement theology. Yeah. By the way, most Calvinists believe this. Right. Just saying. And it basically says, well, God made this covenant with Israel, but, now I'm paraphrasing this, but this is my own, this is, this is my own um, paraphrase. But God made a covenant with Israel, but he changed his mind, and now he made a different covenant, and he did away with the covenant of Israel. That is a doctrine, quite frankly, from the pit of hell. Because it's against the nature of God. A covenant is a covenant. And God doesn't change his mind on a covenant. And I want you to go home tonight, if you even have a question about what I'm saying here about this, 
I want you to name a nation that turned their back on Israel and survived it. Or wasn't cursed as a result of it. Find one. Find one in modern history. How about Great Britain? You want to talk about that one? The largest, the largest nation in the world, Great Britain, until they went after Israel. Now what are they? They're pretty close to being a Muslim country. It's about all left. You see, I didn't discuss the economy tonight. I could have. The Bible talks about economy. It talks about if you don't work, you don't eat. I didn't talk about that, though. I didn't talk about foreign policy. The Bible says quite a bit about foreign policy. I didn't talk about a lot of issues that are facing our nation. I didn't talk about being a debtor nation. I didn't talk about how that you can't spend beyond what you earn. I could have talked about all that stuff, and it's, it's important. It's important. God talks about it. But the things I mentioned tonight, the four issues I mentioned tonight, are issues that God has judged nations on. Very clearly, he's judged nations on. And here's a big question as a Christian in America. It's on the eve of election. Are you going to let God guide your vote? Or are you going to leave your faith outside the voting booth? Are you willing to trade your godly heritage and priceless birthright in this nation for what basically amounts to Esau's bean soup? Are you willing to set aside your values of life? How about family? How about your freedoms? How about the support of Israel for some lesser issue? It comes down to this. Bible-believing Christians can make or break the moral health of a country. And when you go back to Scripture, it says, if my people, if my people, who are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. That's what this is about. It's not about politics. You can talk about politics. I'll talk of politics with you. That's kind of my, my life. But it's not about politics. This isn't about politics. It's about biblical principles. Do not let evil men triumph simply because good men haven't done anything. Christian tonight, the question is this. Have you decided to follow Jesus to the polls? Is Jesus going with you to the polls on Tuesday? Will you stand for life? You stand for family? You stand for freedom? 
How about standing for Israel? That's what this election is really about. If your allegiance is to a culture or a campaign and not to Jesus Christ alone, you're serving another God. You see, salt stings, but it heals. There's people listening to me, probably in the audience, internet, that probably are kind of upset what I said tonight. I love you anyway. Salt stings, but it also heals. Light exposes, but it also shines to Jesus Christ. You see, the values of life, the values of family, the values of freedom in Israel are actually a part of a good news of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus said in, in John 10:10, 10, 10, the thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and destroy. But I am come that ye may have life, that ye may have life more abundantly. Amen. And it's because that he is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. Amen. And no man cometh but by him. See, he can make things right between us and God. Because we are all sinners, we are all doomed to a place called hell. I am no better than anybody else. I am a sinner that has been saved by the grace of God. Amen. And it's only God alone that can save you. Right. You see, Jesus Christ died on a cross so that you could have freedom. He died on a cross for you so you could have life everlasting. He not only died on a cross, but three days later he rose from a grave to set us free from our sin and the consequences of those sins. In John 8, 36, it says, If the Son therefore shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. Amen. 